0: God is at work through his local church and through the teaching of his word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from Lincoln Berean Church. Here is Pastor Brian Clark. So what do you think is necessary as a Christian to maintain a right perspective on things like loving one another, serving one another, caring for one another, things like marriage, sex, money, contentment, according to the writer of Hebrews, we cannot ever lose sight of the fact that the life our souls long for is found outside the camp, to which you say, I have no idea what that means, to which I say, let's talk about that. It's very interesting how similar the book of Hebrews is to the book of Romans in the sense that you have this wonderful, deep, rich theology of salvation by grace through faith. And then you get to the end of it, and it's almost like there's kind of this random, miscellaneous list of things that reflect the outflow of that theology in our lives. So last week in chapter 12, there was this reminder, kind of a review of the book of Hebrews that when we came to Jesus, we didn't come to Mount Sinai, we came to Mount Zion. So it's the new covenant, not the old covenant. So the end of that is, since we have received on the basis of God's grace a new, unshakable kingdom, then we should live like it. That's how chapter 12 ended, and so chapter 13 then starts to talk about that with kind of this seemingly random list. Verse 1, let love of the brethren continue. So this is the Greek word phileo for love. There's a couple different Greek words in the Bible. I think oftentimes the difference between the terms is exaggerated. They're both really strong terms. What's unique is in first century Roman culture, the strongest bond was the bond between brothers. Because women and children were so devalued, In their minds, it's kind of like the idea of a band of brothers. The strongest love was between uh, brothers in a family. Now, we don't necessarily see it that way. So just run it through your own grid, whether it's your love for your spouse or your children, whatever makes sense to you. It's just this strong commitment, this love commitment to family. Love, not defined so much as an emotion, is defined by a commitment of your will. We're in this together, and we're going to get through it. That's the idea of verse 1. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. So again, the whole idea of hospitality in a Roman culture, very different than what the word means to us. This doesn't mean invite your neighbors over for supper. The idea of hospitality was a reminder that in an ancient culture, they didn't really have hotels and motels. They did have occasional inns, but they were rare. They were very expensive and generally speaking, very immoral. Most people wouldn't stay in the inns. So there was a real high value on hospitality. When people traveled, they had to stay with someone. So we learned in chapter 10, these Christians have been dispersed from their homeland because they're Christians. They were undergoing persecution. And so they're trying to find some place to relocate. So the churches met in homes, so when people were there in the homes, there was a need to make sure everybody had a place to stay, everybody had food to eat, in the process of trying to relocate. So that's the general idea of hospitality here. In that culture, with the persecution becoming greater and greater, if the Christians didn't look out for one another, they simply weren't going to survive. Now, the idea of stranger is not a random stranger. It has uh, the word phileo in the word. So it's a stranger that's part of the family. So it's the idea that this is a Christian who somehow has been dispersed, is coming through, whatever, and as a member of the family needs a place to stay and to be cared for in the process of relocating. The second part of the verse is very interesting For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, again, it's very interesting. There's some commentaries, very much like the cloud of witnesses in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, who just immediately make a statement. This doesn't mean you've entertained angels, and then they go on. And it's like there's just this unwillingness to kind of embrace some of the mysteries of our faith. I think. The text is just kind of plain and clear. It means what it means. There are examples of this in both the Old and New Testament. The classic example would be Abraham in Genesis 18, where he entertained guests for supper. Turned out two of them were angels. One was what we call the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus in the Old Testament. So the idea is that typically if you go back and study those encounters, the angels were messengers who brought messages of blessing. And so the idea is that we're in this together. We should love one another. We should care for one another. You never know. The one you're entertaining may actually be an angel in human form. And typically what they're delivering is a message of blessing. And you don't want to miss that. That's, that's the idea of verse 2. Verse 3 Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. So these are not prisoners because they stole something. They're not prisoners because they killed someone. They're prisoners because they're Christians. We had this in chapter 10. Persecution is beginning, they're starting to arrest Christians. And so that's why the text says, as if you're one of them, uh, as members of the body, the idea is it could be you tomorrow. So there has to be this uh, commitment within the Christian culture to take care of one another because tomorrow it may be you in prison, and that's what you will need. Now again, in a first century Roman culture, prisons were very different. Prisons were not there for people to serve out a sentence. That's just not what they did. Prisons were there where people were held until trial. Everybody in prison was just waiting for their trial. As a result of the trial, they may be executed. They may be banished. They may have a debt, like a debtor's prison, in which case they'd often be sold into slavery. They might just be released. But they're all just waiting for trial. Because of that, there just wasn't much care. So maybe bread and water, but oftentimes even that was neglected. So it was understood if you had someone you knew, a member of your family, a friend, whatever, in prison, it was necessary to make sure they had food, they had clothing, they had their basic needs met, or there was a real possibility they simply die in prison. So again, in chapter 10, we had this, that when Christians visit their fellow christians in prison they are in a sense outing themselves they are identify themselves as fellow prisons and there was a fairly high likelihood they could be put in prison themselves so it's a very courageous act but a necessary act to take care of one another So again, you have this both loving one another, this idea of hospitality, this idea of prisoners is the idea that Christians have to come together, run the race together as family, or they simply were not going to make it. Now, when you read those verses and then you think about us, 21st century Americans, most of those issues don't exist. It's a completely different circumstance. But the fundamental principle is the idea of coming together as the people of God, just helping one another in the most ordinary, basic needs of life. So that's kind of the expression of what these verses are talking about. It's difficult enough to be a Christian without Christians fighting with one another. There has to be a coming together across the community and taking care of one another. Now, one of the things that's just... Sad, but over the last couple of decades, for some reason, it's become kind of trendy, kind of vogue, to be anti church. Now, when I say that, I'm not referring to the secular community. By and large, the secular community just leaves us alone. We're talking about fellow Christians that, for some reason, they find it fashionable to throw stones at the church, they just kind of become anti church they seem genuinely surprised that there are imperfect people in churches. That's like being surprised that there are sick people at a hospital. The claim has never been that we are a gathering of the self-righteous, just the opposite. The claim has always been we are sinners and misfits and losers made right by the power of Jesus. There's always going to be issues with people. That's just the way it is. But it's also true, we're talking about people that have been redeemed by the power of Jesus, radically changed. There has to be an understanding, hey, we're not perfect, but we are the church. We're the redeemed. It's hard enough to be a Christian without Christians fighting with one another. We come together in order to run this race together. That's the heartbeat of those verses. Kind of a shift then in verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So in a first century Roman culture, marriage was not valued. Marriage was highly devalued. Because of the devaluing, again, of women and children, primarily it was believed that the role of a wife was to have children and take care of the home. And it was considered to be unreasonable that a husband would limit his sexual experiences just to his wife. That was just a normal part of the culture. So now as Christians, God is calling them to a different way, to a higher standard, rooting it back to Genesis chapter 2, that this is something holy and sacred. This is meant to be a picture of the love affair between God and his people and Christ and the church and to recapture the value that God puts on marriage. What's interesting in this particular verse is this conversation roots to the marriage bed, which is just a way of talking about the sexual experience between a husband and a wife. Now, without boring you with unnecessary detail, the grammatical structure of verse 4 is very interesting in that it ultimately pulls together, in this case, the valuing of marriage centers on protecting the marriage bed. In other words, just like Genesis chapter 2, marriage is described as the two shall become one flesh, which is an emphasis on the sexual union in a marriage that defines this intimacy. So in essence, what he's saying is, is at the center of this valuing is recapturing the sacredness, the holiness of the union, the sexual union between a husband and a wife. Now let me say this a different way. There's a lot of couples today that see marriage as nothing more than a piece of paper. As a matter of fact, I hear couples say, we don't need a piece of paper to say that we love one another. So this is how they justify living together and having sex together. So I do think the piece of paper matters. But let's just put that aside for right now. Let's just go with it. What God is saying in verse 4 is that when two people come together and experience a sexual relationship, in God's mind, In that moment, they're making a promise that I'm making a covenant before God. This is my lifelong one flesh partner. I am committing to marriage with this person. That's the center of the covenant. That was a very big part of the Jewish weddings. There was kind of a party. The couple would go off and actually consummate the marriage. They'd come back and join the rest of the party. There was this sense in which that's the moment where the marriage actually comes together, binds the marriage at the core, the two shall become one flesh. So another way of saying that is whenever someone has a sexual relationship with someone else, what you're saying to God is, I am promising, this is my lifelong one flesh partner. Whether you have a piece of paper or not, in God's opinion, in God's value system, that's what's happening in that moment, and it should be taken seriously. He goes on to say, for those who ignore that, for fornicators and adulterers, there is a consequence. There is judgment. God takes it very seriously. Verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? It's very interesting throughout the New Testament how often this couplet of of sex and money are talked about together. Both are expressions of the same selfish heart. When you're selfish, you use people and you use money and stuff. It's the same heart just fleshing out in two different directions. So often the conversation of sex and money go together. In this case, where it talks about the love of money, literally the Greek word is love of more, often translated covetousness. More money, more stuff, more. Now there's no problem with money. There's no place in the Bible where there's a problem with money. Money's a good thing. It's just we shouldn't love money. We shouldn't live for money. That's not our safety. That's not our security. That's not our significance. That's not what will ultimately last. So think of it like this. There are people that work very hard. They're very good at what they do. And as a result of that, they make a considerable amount of money. But because they're generous people, they steward that money. That allows us to do amazing things in this community and around the world. All of that is good. We're thankful for that. There's no problem with that. The problem is when we start to love money. The problem is when we find our significance in our money and stuff. When we find our security, which is the primary focus in this text, that Jesus is promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus is your safety. Jesus is your security. No matter what happens with the economy, no matter what happens with your business, no matter what happens with the stock market, no matter what happens with the weather, it's going to be okay because ultimately our security is not in a house. It's not in money. It's not in stuff. It's not in our business, not in our bank account. It's in Jesus. Therefore, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll be your helper. I'll be there for you. Jesus wants to be your security that no matter what happens, it's going to be okay. Verse seven, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, Conduct, that means the sum total of their lives imitate their faith. So verse seven is, uh, has three verbs. Remember those who brought the gospel to you. Consider how they lived, the sum total of their lives. So pretty much all commentators agree those people have died. The argument is whether they were martyrs or just died of old age, but th- they've lived their lives, they're gone. They're now among the cloud of witnesses. They're now among the spirits in the presence of the angels at the festival that we talked about last week, waiting for you to join them. But they've come and gone. The the verbs are remember them, take a good look at how they live their lives, and then imitate them. So again, it's back to live for the things that matter. Life is short. Now again, it's not saying everyone should be a missionary or a pastor. It's just saying wherever God's called you, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a business man or woman, whether you're an educator, whether you're in construction, wherever God has called you, you just need to remember what matters, what lasts forever, and to represent God's kingdom wherever God has placed you. That's the idea of verse 7. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, this has come up a few places in the book of Hebrews, Reading between the lines, we guess that the false teachers were saying, well, there was the old covenant, and now you've switched to the new covenant, but that's only going to last a little while, and then what's the next thing going to be? And so there's been a message all throughout the book of Hebrews that's not true. The very beginning of chapter 1, Jesus is not the next word from God. He's the last word from God. Jesus is not the next high priest. He's the last high priest. He's the ultimate high priest. It's not another sacrifice. It's the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus seated at the right hand of God, his mission accomplished. It's been, uh, it's been fulfilled. You remember, we were even told that God is so committed to the new covenant forever that he made an oath and a promise that Christ and his death on the cross will be sufficient for sin forever. So that's the idea there, that we find our contentment, we find our safety and security in Jesus, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not going to change again. This is solid. That's, that's why we find our, our security there. Verse 9, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. This is the message that we don't lose sight of what's good for my heart. Is this message of grace, not religious performance, but the grace of God, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. To be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Probably a reference to the Judaizers, again, bringing elements of the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. That you still have to follow the dietary laws and other parts of that. The comment is the same comment Paul makes in Galatians. That if it did not benefit them before salvation, what would make you think it would benefit someone after salvation? You cannot merit favor with God by keeping a bunch of religious activities. So he's saying, strengthen your heart around grace. Don't go back to the bondage. Now he illustrates it, verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. There's a few commentators, very few, that think the altar is a reference to communion. But that makes no sense. If that's what it was, he would be reestablishing the very thing he's arguing against. The altar is the cross. It's the place where the ultimate sacrifice was made. So we have an altar, the cross, from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. In other words, those still stuck in the old covenant pursuing self-righteousness have not partaken of what Jesus offered. Verse 11... For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. This is one more shadow from the old covenant. On the day of atonement, the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice into the holy of holies and offer it for payment for sin. But the bones had to be taken outside the camp and burned. What people didn't realize is that was actually a shadow or a picture of what was to come. Verse 12, therefore, in light of that, Jesus also, there's the connection, that he might sanctify the people, how did he do that? Through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. You go back and read the Gospels and there's this emphasis that the crucifixion was outside the city. That wasn't just the regulation of the city. It actually was a fulfillment of the shadow of the Old Covenant. That the one who would come was not there to participate in the Old Covenant. Was not there just to be the next high priest. What he would accomplish was actually outside the of all that religious behavior outside of essentially it's a metaphor the city of Jerusalem a walled city was a city dominated by the temple and all that went with it the center of the old covenant for Jesus to fulfill his mission wasn't more of the same within the city he would have to go out of the city and this would be something outside of that Where he would shed his blood in order to fulfill the covenant, to usher in a new covenant built on better promises, brings a better hope to a better city. So, verse 13: So let us go out to him. Where? Outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, meaning Jerusalem. But we are seeking the city which is to come, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the idea is in order to experience the life that my soul longs for. I don't find that within the religious activity of the temple, within religious legalism, within all this, uh, the religious rituals and attempts to merit favor with God. That, in a sense, is the camp. It's the religious camp. Jesus went outside of that to shed his blood and to experience his salvation. I go outside of that camp and I find what I need outside at the cross where Jesus shed his blood for me. It's just this beautiful imagery that reminds us again, it's Mount Zion, it's not Mount Sinai. Verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect showing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So what is the sacrifice of the new covenant? It's living out this new Uh, this new truth in our lives, this wonderful message of grace. So with hearts of thanksgiving, we praise God and we serve, we live out this newfound faith in Christ. It's very interesting to me that in Galatians, in Romans, now in Hebrews, anytime the conversation moves to living out our faith, loving one another, caring for one another, serving one another, there is immediately this concern that we're going to turn it back into religious bondage. Somehow we're going to lose our way and once again think we're meriting favor with God. We're going to turn this back into some sort of religion. So the writers keep going back when they talk about serving and and remembering that this is not an attempt to merit favor with God. Don't turn it into that. Don't turn it into religion. Don't turn it into bondage. Our lives have been changed through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Christ is enough. You don't need anything else. But now having lives radically changed by the power of Jesus, we live like it. There's got to be those of you who would honestly say you have never really experienced new life in Christ. Maybe you're up to your eyebrows in religion. Maybe that's how you grew up. Maybe that's all you've ever known. But you have to understand the life that your soul longs for is found outside of the religious camp where Jesus went to shed his blood in payment for your sin, to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Having made payment, he was buried, rose again, and offers salvation freely as a gift of his grace. That's what your heart longs for. You're never going to find it in a bunch of religious activity. You can only find it in Christ. Christ is enough. Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Brian Clark at Lincoln Berean Church. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.